and welcome to Retro Game Audio. My name's Patrick. And I'm Steve. And my name is Andy. That's right. Today we are joined by our friend Andy. Uh, he's the creator of Super Russian Roulette, a brand new light zapper game for the NES. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks so much. Uh, I'm actually a huge fan of the show. Uh, I've been waiting for a podcast like this pretty much all my life. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's um, great. So we'll be talking more about your your amazing creation of the Super Russian Roulette later in this episode. Uh, but to quickly plug it and explain what it is here, uh, Andrew, how would you describe it and where can people find it? So Super Russian Roulette is a party game for the NES, and it probably is uh, exactly what you think it is. Uh, the game puts three players against the fully voiced trash-talking cowboy, and you take turns playing Russian Roulette with the zapper, the old light gun. Uh, I'm an electrical engineer by trade, so I'm primarily motivated by uh, designing cartridge hardware that'll really push the NES to its absolute limits. So I wanted to make like the first fully voiced NES game, uh, so the cowboy character has like nine minutes of audio, and uh, I tried to make it as animated as Punch-Out, because I thought the characters were so memorable. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, the audio is like uh, the theme of this episode, and what, what you pulled off is pretty amazing, so well, we'll be taking a closer look at that later on. But Steve, what is so what exactly is the topic for today's episode? Well, we're talking about pushing the limits of audio, so uh, today we're going to talk about high-quality sample playback on the NES. Red Warrior, your life cord is running out. Red Warrior is about to die. So this is an aspect of NES audio that, like, if I recall correctly, we completely glossed over this in our NES overview episode. Yeah, uh, we kind of said something along the lines of how the NES uses samples that are mostly 1-bit DPCM, just kind of alluding to the fact that they're not always DPCM. But we didn't go any further than that, which would be to explain what those exceptions actually are. Yeah, so today's episode is going to explore those exceptions, and we have Andy here to help explain it, um, since, you know, you understand this stuff far better than we do. Yeah, I spent way too much time with it lately. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess to start here, so, you know, it does. we're not jumping, like, into super technical stuff for the listeners, um, let's just first brush up on DPCM. Uh, so the NES has a fifth sound channel that's dedicated entirely to sample playback, and it most commonly plays uh, DPCM samples, which is, you know, what we consider to be the normal or standard samples for the system. To name just a few examples, you can find it supplying percussion in Super Mario Bros. 3. It makes up the drums and bongos in Bayou Billy. And it's also used for bass lines in later Sunsoft games. So DPCM shows up for a lot of vocal samples and sound effects as well, and the earliest example of DPCM in a Famicom or NES game uh, that we could find, we're, we're pretty sure this is the earliest example, uh, comes from Wild Gunman. So this puts the earliest known samples on the system as arriving in February of 1984. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that's not far into the lifespan of the system at all. Oops. So I guess samples kind of did arrive almost right away. Yeah, and you know, I think there being a first for that is like not really all that interesting when there's only like a dozen or so games that came before it. But it's still it's still kind of neat thinking about how Wild Gunman was the first game on the system to use all five sound channels. Apparently, strangely enough, it's a Zapper game with a Western setting like Super Russian Roulette. Uh, in fact, I, I used the uh, characters from Wild Gunman, the uh, game B with a shootout. I used them as a for the prototype to put a player at the table. Oh wow! 
that's crazy. Really funny. Yeah, it's like <laughs> yeah. it sort of came full circle here. That's strange. It's actually really, really funny. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see if I can. I see if I can dig it up. But Andrew, what is the DPCM exactly, and how does the NES handle playing it? <clears throat> so DPCM stands for Delta Pulse Code Modulation, and it's a uh, sort of tricky to explain without drawing it out. But if you can visualize a sound waveform then you know that the x-axis is time and the y is the output level. And speaking pretty generally, the resultant audio is analog, but we know that digitally this waveform needs to be represented by some data. And the sample rate determines when the changes happen on the x, and uh, a value uh, fits in the resolution of the y. So there are a number of ways to compress audio, and the NES chose DPCM. Essentially, there's a 7-bit DAC. It's a digital analog converter. So uh, seven bits means 128 steps uh, mm-hmm. that the waveform can occupy. Okay, yeah. And uh, that can be driven directly or by the DPCM unit. Games rarely drove it uh, directly uh, for a number of reasons that we'll discuss later. So essentially, you kick off this DPCM unit by writing a handful of registers to define how you want uh, the sound to be played, and it'll automatically start pulling data and playing back the waveform. And the keyword here is delta. If you imagine a byte having eight bits... Every bit will either tell it to go up or down. Now, you know, you can't even really play silence. Silence looks like one, zero, one, zero, one, zero. You're going up and down rapidly. Ah, yeah. Um, You need to choose a direction. So uh, it's a very efficient way to store data, uh, but that's why it's so crunchy and gnarly. You know, when when you think of NES samples and speech, you think of them being um, like a very bad telephone or something. It's Mm -hmm. because the wave... Uh, needs to approach the value uh, one step at a time. So you lose fidelity. The technical explanations for how this stuff works has always been a little over my head, and uh, it, it still is in some ways. Um, but no, it, help, it helps bring some clarity to it, and uh, that's that's great. Thank you. Yeah, so so does that mean technically, like, just because of the jaggedness of, you know, kind of as you're saying that the, you know, it, one, zero, zero, or zero, once, that jaggedness is basically why the sound sounds so jagged. It's just really the limitation of how it's actually put in there, or am I misunderstanding? Oh, no, I mean, that that's correct. So, you know, if, if I talk about that space being, you know, 128 positions, right, and you were at the bottom of the waveform and you wanted to approach the top, you know, with a regular wave file, you could just kind of instantly go, okay, zero up to 128. And that would look like a part, uh, 127. That would look like a part of a square wave. But with DPCM, you'd have to take 128 steps. Ah, uh, that up makes to a lot of sense. That, that actually, like, the light bulb just went off in my head. That's actually really awesome. Yeah, that, that absolutely makes sense to me. Yeah, you, can, you can only, like, take these small, like, baby steps in either direction. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, you know, the human ear is such a good filter that you can make out speech, you know, much to our advantage. Uh, but then you'll notice things like uh, S sounds will have a um, you'll hear like a tone almost because the thing is oscillating, uh, trying to catch up. So you'll hear like a whine uh, in certain samples and certain pitches. Uh, but that's overall why it sounds like a like, you know, scratchy telephone or, or a very low fidelity radio. Ah, OK. Yeah, that makes sense. I just want to say as an aside, that's actually, I've never been able to actually have that explained to me in any particular way that makes sense. So thank you. <laughs> oh yeah. I'd love, no, please ask me questions that that's the no, best way I can, like, and, I can do and this. I think that, that I'm going to have a lot of stupid questions because it's just kind of like, you know, we, we, we talk about a lot of the stuff on the podcast, but a lot of it is just the technical aspect of it is just so far over our heads. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's just great to be like, you know, this is a question I've had. It's really stupid. Can I get the answer? <laughs> yeah so. i mean it's actually i think someone will probably call me out you actually step in twos 
in, yes. on the NES. I, I do um, remember reading that somewhere. So the NES goes and fetches a byte, and then, you know, one bit at a time uh, at a certain uh, sample rate. And I think that the it tops out at 33 kilohertz or so. Um, it's looking at the next possible bit and going, okay, do I go up or down? And it actually steps in twos. So you have, um, you can go 63 up. And that would that would be you traversing the entire waveform from the bottom to the top. And again, you know, you can represent, uh, you know, when you de- like say down convert uh, a wave file into this format, it, it really is amazing that you can discern, uh, you know, a, a tom or, or you know an orchestral hit. It, it, it comes through, and, and you can understand it, even though if you looked at the waveform, it looks. Um, looks a lot different than the input waveform. Oh, absolutely. That That's why there's a bit of magic to it to me. Like it's the DPCM, the, the waveforms are so crude that it's amazing to me that they still come out <laughs> intact. They still come out intelligible in some way. So I 100% agree. I, it's, yeah. it's kind of crazy. Um, and so a weird quirk with DPCM, which was pointed out to me by Hunretro Geek, is that when it's played, it can cause some kind of a glitch with your controller inputs. Um, so, you know, this seems to be one of the reasons earlier NES games didn't use DPCM in music, uh, because having it in music would totally mess up your gameplay, like at least until a fix was figured out. Like, do you know what's like, um, like, what's the deal with that? Oh, uh, man, do I ever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know. Pretty early on, when I, when I met Pat, uh, we'd met at Eight Static, and we were talking about doing a, a MIDI cartridge for the NES to act yes. like a synthesizer. And I had come up with a way to use something that was like an Arduino through the controller port um, to you know have a MIDI device going in. So yes, you know, yeah, plug I in a port that. too. Yeah, totally. We were talking about doing uh, a, a double up drum kit, so you can hit your tom with a trigger and then have it trigger a triangle wave. I was really stoked about it. Uh, we're still going to do it. We're going to do yes, it for the show. We'll revive it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but at, at any rate, uh, so I plugged into port two, and I have my microcontroller sending controller data, but actually sending MIDI data uh, across that second line. And of course, you know, you start small. You start with the square waves and the triangle and the noise, and everything worked great. Then I put the sample channel in. And all of a sudden, stuff started stopped working. Uh, <laughs> stuff just completely stopped working. Like all, you know, I'd pl- go to play a sample, and then the square wave would trigger, uh, and I couldn't figure it out. And that led me to do some uh, pretty heavy reverse engineering of of what I was doing and what the console is actually doing. So uh, there's two ways to read a controller, right? So the the two I'm going to use for an example are the NES and the Sega Genesis or Mega Drive. Okay. So the the Genesis, you look at the if you look, it's a nine pin connector. And, um, you know, so you have eight buttons, uh, ABC start up, down, left, right, and then a ground pin. And that's what I'd like to call parallel, right? You know, you have okay. a ground pin, it's going to all the buttons. When you push it down, it closes that circuit. Now, the NES, you'll notice, uh, has seven pins. So you say, okay, well, there's eight buttons. How is that possible? That's what we'll call serial. So instead of asking for all the buttons at once and having them all active, what it, you can actually do is send them in a, a pulse stream, and then you only need uh, you need fewer lines in order to pull that controller data. So you can get away with say you know a sixteen button controller like the Super Nintendo and still use the same amount of lines, and you ha- it comes down to like a clock, a latch, uh, a data line, uh, power and ground. So you have five to represent as many buttons as you want. Versus having a a line for every button, but the, that that stream can get 
interrupted or confused by TPCM, though? Is that the problem? Ah, so that's exactly it, right? So the the greatest part of DPCM or, or the reason it's used so often in games is because you tell a DPCM unit to do something and then you go on and you start you keep running your game logic, you keep doing all your processing. And then when the DPCM shifts out its 8 bits and it wants to go get a new byte, it just kind of steals the bus, tells the computer or the CPU, uh, just hang on a second, I'm going to grab a byte, and then you can go back to what you're doing. And what's great about that is because your game could keep processing its logic. Now, the issue is with DPCM, when it goes to steal it, and if you happen to be reading the controller at the time, it does a double pulse. So you kind of lose your place. So if I'm asking the controller, hey, give me B, okay, give me A, give me select, give me start, I, I'm keeping track. But if DPCM jumps in while I'm trying to read that, it'll pulse it twice and I won't know. So it'll skip over start. So I lost my place. So what you find in, say, a game like Super Mario 3 is they read the controller three times in a row. And if two match, that's the controller uh, read that they use. Wow. And Yeah. Whoa. And what, what's interesting about that is you say, okay, well, what if the, the sample jumps in again? What happens? And the truth is, even at the fastest DPCM rate, um, the next tick won't happen till after you've read the controller three times. So you're safe. So you read it three times. If the first two match, you go on. If two and three match, you go on just the same way. So it's a, sort of like a redundancy check, or uh, it's it's just it's making sure um, it actually happened. Absolutely, and uh, it, it's a really interesting problem. And only through extensive research, like you guys do on the show, uh, people able to determine what was happening. And it has to do with the uh, circuit that generates the pulse to tell it, "Hey, give me the next bit." Huh. That's totally bizarre. That's it's so like, crazy. Yeah, it, I had it, no clue. It makes me wonder, like, what the first game to use DPCM uh, without breaking controller inputs, like, like what game allowed DPCM with gameplay? I wonder what the yeah. first example would be. It, it really has to do with the fact that the DPCM could ask for a new byte at any time. It, it just kind of jumps in. It, what's really interesting about it is the, the problem didn't show up until later, right? Yeah, one example that was pointed out to me is the original Castlevania actually does have some DPCM in it. I remember thinking like, oh, you know, there's no samples in it, but there is one when your character gets hit. But of course, there's no input you can do when you get hit, like your character's locked. So uh, it's sort of like they snuck in that one sample where they didn't have to worry about the controller confusing it. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. Ah, you know, I, I bet you anything, if you went back and we, we did our, our research, um, we would find that really often... When a sample was playing, it, it wasn't a point that required any uh, user input. I exactly. bet that would be universally true uh, now that you bring it up. So, you know, with all of these these, these weird issues, um, combined with later NES games having better mappers and more room in their games for content, you know, that's why sample usage is pretty sparse in the earlier titles. And even though Wild Gunman had DPCM in 1984, it wasn't used in music until it was first introduced as a bass drum sample over three years later uh, for Konami's exciting billiard. Uh, at least that's currently the earliest known example of DPCM in music.
But anyways, today we're actually going to be talking about higher quality sample playback on the NES, uh, the samples that weren't 1-bit DPCM. Uh, this is often referred to as raw PCM, and it allowed for higher quality speech uh, and bigger and longer samples. Hi! Let's play Hide and Speak. Choose a game! So, how, how did these samples differ from DPCM again? I remember before you said DPCM only takes in incremental steps up and down, and these ones let you, you know, leap anywhere in the waveform. Is that pretty much it? Uh, yeah, so the one nice thing about the NES is that uh, there is a register to let you write that DAC directly. And now if you think of the two ways you can write that DAC, one of them is to tell the DPCM to, uh, unit to do it for you, and the other one is to write directly to it and set the waveform position instantly. So, if, you know, we were talking before how you lose fidelity because you can't, uh, you need to approach a point. You can't instantly jump there. Now you can, uh, but, you know, you need to think of the downside of that. Now, if you're not using the DPCM unit anymore, you need to time that yourself and you need to do that in software. So that'll hog all of your CPU usage. You're basically generating a frequency by saying, okay, write to the DAC. Don't do anything, you know, do something called a no-op or a NOP. It's basically an instruction that uh, does nothing. Uh, it's on every processor that you can think of. So you're basically like, you know, in assembly, you're LDA, you're loading into the accumulator, uh, you know, some uh, waveform position you want to load. STA to 4011, which is the register for the DAC. And then you're saying, not, 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 not. Like you're, you're counting that many cycles <laughs> against the, the clock CPU rate to generate your own sample rate. And if you think about what that means, it really means you cannot do anything else. So, you know, it, it's immediately evident when you see games that suddenly pause. Like, you know, they'll be playing music and then it'll just stop and you'll hear a sample or like it'll scroll onto the screen and play a sample it's really clear when it's doing nothing else, it's probably uh, a raw write like that. So you, you're basically, you're doing a software sample rate. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, so so it, it's kind of interesting then. So I guess the DPCM was provided, I guess, by Nintendo when thinking of how this works as kind of like a backdoor into doing that. Um, and which would mean that kind of like, like you said, there's the hard way or there's like, here, we're giving you a tool to do this. Um, I mean, is that how you view it? Or, I mean, am I understanding this correctly? Oh, yeah, totally. It's it's basically one is useful in gameplay. It said, okay, we're giving you a unit that will uh, manipulate the DAC for you so you can go off and make an actual game. Um, but it was nice that they left in uh, the ability to write the DAC directly uh, because then some developers started getting clever and making their own soft compression. And we can touch on that later. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Um, so something that's sort of always troubled me about the raw PCM in NES games is that in comparison to other audio stuff for the NES, I find it to be something that's a lot more difficult to learn about. And like, I know I'm pretty sure you felt the same way, Steve. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's confused me for years <laughs> to yeah. be hundred percent honest. Right. Like, so for example, to sort of give the listeners a picture of like what I've gone through trying to understand this. Um, so without even really understanding the technical aspects of DPCM, Years ago, I made a large collection of DPCM samples because there was a tool out there that just lets you rip them from NSFs and ROMs. And just by harnessing the samples, like I could take away something from it. Like I could uh, look at this library I built up, see how large the samples are, see what the most common kinds of samples were. Like if a game had just one sample in the music, I could 
you know, be able to learn like, oh, it's probably going to use a bass drum. So it's like I, I could say something with like some certainty about how DPCM was used in games. Like I, I, could, I could take something away from it. Yeah, so you could spot the patterns, get a, a general idea of what it's, you know what's typical from a game. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So without even necessarily understanding the format, you know how it works inside and out, I felt like I could hold DPCM samples in my hand, and it was something I could talk about with confidence. But with raw PCM, there's not really a good way to get at get at these files. Um, there like isn't a way to dump them, and I mean not an easy way at least and they're not like they're usually not included in nsfs since there's difficulty getting them uh to work in the nsf uh, format in the first place yeah i think that without a good way to quantify or analyze them in some way it's been kind of a mystery to us like we just we haven't unlocked that and since it hasn't been unlocked it's you know how can we analyze it you know what i mean so it's we know that the nes is capable of doing that but uh you know beyond that i mean we haven't touched it and I, many others haven't really honestly the, the problem with our, our weird brand of uh, digital archaeology that we we do is that when, when you go to look at these games in an emulator um you know data is data you can't there's no file structure there's no uh fat table there's nothing like that you know there are bytes and they can be anything they could be graphics data they could be compressed text they can be you know ah codes actual program code uh sample data whether it's dpcm or raw or some soft compression technique that uh the developer put in so what when the basically in order to figure out what everything is you need to run the game and see how it uses it you know every developer had their there was no single sdk so every developer was doing it in their own way so it, it's especially hard to to try to figure out uh, you know what the data represents, right? You have to look at the game and how it's using it. Gotcha. Yeah, that that makes so much sense. And so I think my last question for now is like, what's with uh, there's NSFs that have issues with PCM support, and it has to do uh, with these timer interrupts. Is there like any reason that you know of why the NES could handle them, but not the NSF format? I guess it's I guess it's tricky because the uh, I don't know how an NSF does it. Like I know how you could. Um, like you can use like the scan line counter, for instance, to, to like, there's a bunch of crazy tricks you can do, but I don't know any games that do it. So I actually don't know that much about the NSF, I suppose. Ah, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Cause I have heard, um, someone propose like, like a new NSF format. Like, I think there's been like some, that's been like a background idea for a bunch of years th- that they would update the NSF format. So that it had an easier time playing PCM. Okay. So with that all out of the way, let's talk about these samples and the games they were used in. So despite the aforementioned difficulty in studying PCM in NES games, we were able to do a few things. To start with, we made a chronological list of all the games we could find that use raw PCM in them. To help us with this, we were able to use the debugger in the NES emulator FCEUX uh, to look for writes to a particular register. And we had a sort of method we used to help inform us when it was actually PCM and not just regular DPCM. And I was also taught a method to determine the sample rate of samples by a sort of calculation that you can apply to the space between the writes to that register. Um, So that actually helps us assess the quality of the samples in some way. And additionally, on top of that, some code can be found in the debugger, which actually informs us whether or not a sample is actually 7-bit, 
or if it's restrained to be something smaller, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a moment. Yeah, so even though this is initially difficult for us to wrap our heads around, we nonetheless found a way to take a closer look at you know the samples here. And so the earliest example of PCM in an NES game that we currently know of comes from Tag Team Pro Wrestling. Tag Team Pro Wrestling has a sound effect for when the player gets hit, the bell ringing, and also the referee counting to three. So to put this in a historical perspective, the Japanese version of this game originally came out in April of 1986. So this is a little over two years and over 100 titles later on the system than the first appearance of the regular DPCM in Wild Gunman. Um, but this does predate the first example of DPCM in music, you know, Exciting Billiard, which we played earlier. Um, you know, this predates this by a little over a year. So now, of course, an earlier example than Tag Team Wrestling might turn up. So these numbers could be subject to change. But, you know, right now it looks like it took quite some time to work up to the use of PCM from regular DPCM. So it's safe to say we're coming from a kind of humble beginnings here, obviously. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Jeez. Uh, that's one word for it, humble. Um, <laughs> so I don't think we really have much of an advantage over the regular DPCM here. Yeah, it's, it's really not very good yet, but you definitely do better with PCM. You know, j just to mention, every byte counted, you have to think about, uh, you know, the trade-off between putting speech in your game and, and not. And, you know, how distorted can you make it before uh, it's not worth it anymore? Because, <laughs> right. because the, these chips only came in powers of two, right? So you had a 32K or 64 or 128 and 256. And you bet if you said, okay, well, you know, I can – this one, two, three pin count. Um, sounds great at a higher sample rate, and that put you at 129K, they're not going to buy a 256K chip for that because right. it would go up uh, an, an immense amount, especially in 1985 or 86, right? Yeah, they, they we're going to be listening to more examples where they definitely ride that line of like, they definitely settled for the worst quality they possibly could have. <laughs> yeah, right. It, it, they just It'll expand to fit, and that's about it. Um. So these tag team wrestling sa uh, samples all have a very low sample rate of roughly 3.47 kilohertz. Uh, so that's a big reason as to why they don't sound very good. And that's like right at the bottom of the spectrum of the samples we've looked at. I, I double checked the list and this is the second lowest sample rate for speech we've found so far. So that obviously leads to what was the lowest sample rate we found. Uh, and it actually comes from our next game chronologically, which would be Ghostbusters. Oh, man. <laughs> I remember that one. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that sample plays at a very slow crawl of roughly 3.35 kilohertz, but that's only half the picture. It's also apparently a 4-bit sample instead of a 7-bit sample. Yeah, this is kind of a weird thing we weren't expecting. Right, so apparently some games will limit the amount of space they allocate to a given sample so it can have like a smaller bit rate. Um, this is something Hunter Retro Geek found and pointed out to me when we were uh, looking at the Ghostbusters sample. Right. And, and we touched on this a bit before where we were saying, okay, you have full control of this DAC. And at, at the laziest, um, but also the highest fidelity, you could just have every byte be a 7-bit representation of where the waveform can be. Uh, but if you're clever um, and you're willing to accept the trade-off that you can't really do anything else while... Uh, you're writing to this DAC, you can implement your own soft compression routine. So you can say, okay, you know, I'm going to make it 4-bit 
Um, so, you know, you're going to get less quality, but you can fit twice as much if, if you're talking about using the whole byte for seven or using two of these samples in one byte. But even though it's four bit, like it's still the same thing. Like if we have DPCM as one category of being like the normal one bit samples, four bit is still the same thing as the seven bit samples. They, they just, like you said, shifted the values over and found a way to add soft compression is what you're saying. Right. For the, for the purposes of this episode, everything's going to fall in one of those two categories. Either the DPCM unit's doing it for you in a, a delta uh, modulated fashion, or uh, it's being written to the raw DAC by software. Yes. How they do the raw software, I guess, could be your sub- subcategories, but um, they will both fit into one of those two buckets. Yeah, yeah, makes perfect sense. And so we found a good handful of games that use forfeit samples. I mean, we thought it was weird, but I guess there's actually a couple, you know, and they're mm-hmm. in the minority um, as, you know, most regular PCM samples are 7-bit. But in addition to Ghostbusters, we found 4-bit samples in Hammering Harry. Super Jeopardy. Let's play Jeopardy. For 200 points, the answer is... Mule. Welcome, Purple Packer. Purple Packer. Daiku no Gensen 2. Pinbot. And there's also Gauntlet 2 and Skater Die 2. Yeah, so those last two examples are both games that deserve special mention here. Earlier we mentioned that playing raw uh, PCM samples on NES is very taxing of resources. So games typically pause uh, to do nothing else while PCM samples play. Um, but a couple exceptions can be found in Gauntlet 2 and Skater Die 2. And I imagine this probably has something to do with the samples being 4-bit and having a low sample rate. Uh, my best guess is those two things combined give the games a bit more room to work with and allow simultaneous activity. Is is that right at all, Andrew? Or so you know, I'm, I'm actually not sure how they're doing it. You know, I could take a few. Uh, I, I know how it would be possible, but I, I think it's pretty impressive that that they're they're doing it in that way. Because again, you know, we we're always uh, bringing up the point that if you're doing it in software, you're hogging all the CPU resources. And now I I know if I had to write a demo, like how I would do it. Uh, but the fact that they put it in the game so seamlessly that I never really noticed and assumed it was DPCM, I think is pretty cool. I think that warrants some further research. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. Like, so in the case of Gauntlet 2, P- like PCM sound effects can definitely occur during gameplay and it does it quite a lot. Um, th- like it has a persistent buzzer when your HP is low. Um, so like that really stresses like how the game can handle those two things together. Red Warrior, your life cord is running out. Red Warrior is about to die. So, like, you know, without video, maybe that doesn't make too much sense to the listeners, but, like, most of those sounds, uh, I think there, there might be a couple that sort of do hiccups, but, like, the constant, like, da-dun, da-dun, like, your character can move, enemies move on the screen, like, while those sounds play. It's, it's pretty cool. It definitely is. And so, uh, talking about Skate or Die 2, uh, PCM is used simultaneously with music from the rest of the sound channels. It makes for one of the most ridiculous and over-the-top title screen themes on the NES.
it sounds like the, like those like old like C sixty four demo tracks or whatever. Like you know, oh, totally. there's only one yeah. song in the whole game, and it's like eight minutes long, and it's just on the front, and then you get in, and there's actually no like VGM throughout the entire game. <laughs> yeah. It's just just one thing that like Tell just like ripped out and put in there. <laughs> and if I remember correctly, uh, when I rented that game, I mean, we lost our minds when that happened, of course, right? So saying skate or die, and I think it's like a marquee, and then they, the words light up. Yes. Uh, yes. And then, yep. and then a part and it goes, die, 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 die. <laughs> you know, we were just like, whoa. <laughs> it's, it's kind of intense. It's uh, great. And so something that's, you know, kind of interesting here is Skater Die 2 brings the lowest sample rate I've seen so far, uh, dipping as low as around 2.5 kilohertz. Wow. It still sounds okay. I can make out what yeah. you're saying. Well, yeah, that's, and, well, it's understandable when you consider the context, because the speech samples are actually in the ballpark of 6 to 7 kilohertz. Ah. Um, but for the guitar samples in the music, uh, when you consider that, like, p- pitched down versions of the notes, they're just playing back the same sample at lower sample rates. Uh, that means they they will drop to pretty low frequencies to get the lowest notes that are in there. So, um, so like you know a, something around two and a half kilohertz sounds ridiculously low, but when you consider the range of guitar samples is like two and a half to five kilohertz, it's like oh that's the bottom of the spectrum. So oh yeah, that does make sense. Yeah, uh, but Skater Die Two brings us into a like a pretty exclusive club here, which is games that used raw PCM in their music. Um, so like not including modern homebrew stuff, there's only five examples of that. Uh, yeah, that, that small list of games includes Action 52, Battletoads, Battletoads and Double Dragon, and uh, The Great Waldo Search. And we can divide that into two categories, games that mixed PCM with other sound channels and games that use the loop of the PCM by itself. So let's start with Battletoads. We kind of have actually something special to share here. Yeah, so before we mentioned there was difficulty repping uh, NSFs with PCM, but just recently, thanks to the efforts of Mr. Norbert and Karmic, um, we have a proper working Battletoads NSF with all of the PCM in there. Which is awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, about time. Um, yeah. And Battletoads also has an intro sequence where there are visuals that are too complex uh, to have accompanying PCM. So the drum samples frequently drop out, sometimes for fairly le- lengthy sequences you know, to accommodate it. Yeah, you recently uploaded a video showing how the drums cut out. Uh, we'll link that in the show notes. Uh, but here's a brief reminder on how that sounds. So not only was it hard to make the, uh, this into a proper NSF in the first place, but as far as the music goes in game, you know, there's sound effects throughout the title screen section, the drums are cutting in and out. So there was never really a full and clean version of this track before. But what we now have is essentially like a remastered complete version of the song. And the samples themselves are even a little bit cleaner than they are in game because they don't have the interrupts from the picture processing unit. So uh, let's give a listen. This is probably the first time you're ever hearing the Battletoads introduction uh, at this quality.
Oh, that's that's great. I, I, I one of my favorite things about uh, this effort is kind of this act of restoration for some of these uh, songs. You know, the episode you, you guys had done with uh, the tracks that kind of cut off early, I thought was so interesting because you know things that you can't trigger in game, uh, you know, they're lost to time. And I, I, I really enjoy this effort. Like, uh, there was that Star Tropics thing that, um, Brad Smith had done. Yes. Uh, where, yeah. he, he, yeah. he, you know, he fixed the engine. And I, 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 it's like restoring, like, um, restoring an old, you know, wax cylinder or something. You know, it's, 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 I just think it's so interesting that the, the stuff was there and then the developers said, well, good enough. Um, and that's, that's fine. Uh, but you know, f- for those who like to know what uh, the original intention was by the composer, I think it's cool that we can restore pieces Abs- like this. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And so this is uh, a really weird thing too, with Battletoads that I had no idea about before. Um, Brigalad from the NA- NES dev forums has this to say, looking more in detail at the code once more, I'm pretty sure it does not play samples at all. Instead, it simply synthesizes sounds with mathematical formulas um, made of additions, subtractions, logical operations, and shifts. Um, so, like, the Battletoad drum samples are not really samples? Do you know anything about that? Uh, I, you know, I don't know that uh, specific bit of code in Battletoads, but it makes total sense, right? So if you wrote a subroutine to generate that waveform, then you're not storing raw data for, say, something as simple as, like, a triangle wave or a square wave. Because if you wanted to generate a square wave on your fifth channel... You can just say, okay, LDA, you know, 127, STA 4011. So you're just taking it and writing it into the sound register saying, going all the way to the top, knop until you want the pulse to go down, and then load zero into the waveform. So you just generated a square wave, right? Um, but if you wrote a routine to, to generate um, a noise, like white noise or samples or, or things like that, uh, then you're not storing raw data and so that can be a great way to create uh, essentially digital uh synthesis um i think it's really cool that they do it that way yeah that's insane like i I would not think of those drums as synthesis but that's that's incredible actually that's awesome it's like a dds yeah Yeah. so i guess we'll have to also talk about something that everyone kind of remembers from battletoads but it'd be the pause theme um and (laughs) Uh, that also uses the PCM drum beat, and that was that track was tucked in purposely where it was since the game is being paused, so that's a convenient time to use PCM, of course. <laughs> I, I do love that one. It's great. It's maddening. Like I remember, like leaving that on to like annoy my little brother or something like that. Because like I paused it and then like went outside to go cut the lawn, and he like uh, and like it was something that was like I knew that it was going to annoy him, and I knew I'd get in trouble for doing it because I knew he was trying to concentrate <laughs> on something, and it was just like constantly pulsing. And I came back and like you know it was still on. My mom had told him not to turn it off, and it was just we can cut that whole story, but I just think it's really funny that he used to use no. it, but that's on torture someone. <laughs> you, you you can, but I swear I did the same thing to my sister. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's some other PCM in Battletoads as well. Like it's for sound effects, like the heavier thuds when you kill an enemy. Um, and there's also a few drum hits in the uh, level clear jingle. But let's move on to Battletoads and Double Dragon. This is the third and last game we know of that mixes PCM with the regular NES channels to make music. PCM is once again found in the intro and level clear jingle. 
Um, but there's also a character select screen with a pretty cool track. So that leaves us with two remaining games that just use loops of PCM by itself uh, for the title screen music. And those games are the fantastic and uh, just wonderful Action 52 and the equally wonderful The Great Waldo Search. Uh, so we'll listen to those tracks uh, back to back. Uh, I made a file called Action Waldo, and I think that's the only <laughs> <laughs> that's the only file ever named Action Waldo. OK, here we go. Make your selection now. A wet Waldo. A wet Waldo. A wet Waldo. A wet Waldo. Oh, yeah. Oh. oh man those are those are the, i remember the first time i just randomly opened like the great waldo search rom mm-hmm. and just being like kind of horrified and like also amazed at the same time being like what is this music like <laughs> I mean, it's funny my friend actually has a uh, inbox uh action 52 that we mess around with sometimes oh wow um, is, isn't that pretty rare yeah i mean i think it's not super rare i mean it's just expensive i guess for the most part Mm -hmm. um they found like a bunch of them so there's a time when it was like really cheap to get them maybe about 50 to 100 bucks Um, okay i think it's still something like that he got it like he's like he saved that money and bought it It was probably a little bit more expensive that it is such like i mean even just looking at the cart and everything it's clear that like a bunch of guys in their garage put this together um it's just like and you know like the, the ads and everything it's like 52 amazing games and everything um and like 40 of the games don't even work um oh it's it's just a mess but it was always funny because like you know I, did they even get the rights to use what they used like i like for the for the first song or like because it's it's kind of like a, just a couple segments of things like did they fall into parody or something like that because like I get what they're trying to do with that song. It's not necess- it's kind of sounds generic, but they are kind of sampling something. So maybe it's only five seconds kind of repeating on purpose, <laughs> something like that. I, um, I, w- but- I would have like no doubts that, I mean, if they didn't bother getting their game properly licensed by Nintendo, there's no way they cared about the sample being legit or not. I can't awesome. imagine that's the case. Yeah, That's <laughs> awesome. So something like 55 games or so in our current list of Famicom and NES games that use raw PCM. Uh, So we're not going to play examples from all of them, uh, kind of in the interest of time. But we are going to jump around the list a bit and share a few more examples we found interesting. So the third game on our list chronologically is Dead Zone, a Famicom Disk System game uh, by Sunsoft. It has a bit more speech in it than the two games before it, which would be Tag Team Pro Wrestling and Ghostbusters. And it sounds a little better. (laughs) (laughs) 
So we uh, we talked about the audio of Dead Zone a little bit in the Sunsoft episode, but we hadn't put this list together yet. So seeing this in context now, like it, it looks like it might be fair to say that Sunsoft was the first company to use raw PCM well. Or like at the very least, it's definitely a step up from you know the stuff that came before it. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, obviously, it, it, it does sound a lot better than Ghostbusters. Um, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it, it definitely like I can make it out a little bit, you know. And we, as we talked about in the Sunsoft episode, they were constantly trying to push the envelope, um, you know, with that like amazing studio they had rolling there. So I, it doesn't surprise me that they would be like making innovations and using it well, like you know, kind of at the beginning of this. Absolutely. Dead Zone also credits Dr. Moser for the speech synthesis. Uh, that's another rabbit hole we could go down, but the short version of it is that Dr. Moser and his son were heavily involved in speech synthesis technologies and owned a bunch of patents relating to it. And so their tech is used in a bunch of video games across all sorts of platforms and lots of non-gaming devices as well. Yeah, there's like a Wikipedia page that talks a little bit about him. Um, and so there's probably Moser technology behind other examples in our list too, and we probably just don't even know about it yeah Uh, like they kind of pop up everywhere um oh so there's something kind of cool from punch out here uh so punch out is the sixth game in our list and it's the only first party nintendo game showing up and that has a raw pcm sample of a crowd cheering when you boot the game up but the weird part is there's also a, a cheering sound when a match starts or when a character gets knocked down but that's a different sample which is just the normal 1-bit DPCM. So moving along, uh, the seventh game on our list, uh, uh, you know, well, Akari Warriors 2 deserves a special mention. So in addition to sounding really bad, obviously, Hun Retro Geek told Patrick he thought he saw evidence that they didn't know how to implement the PCM correctly. Didn't you come to the same conclusion, Andrew? Yeah, and you know, it's funny that you brought up this game because it's one of the first ones I thought of. It's it's one of the samples I remember most, like right after the Blades of Steel intro. I used to play it with my cousin, and it's just so gnarly. And uh, can I also mention that in the beginning of the game, uh, if you watch the intro, they play Morse code for the text as it's being printed on the screen for the intro. It's ah, the most painfully okay. slow thing <laughs> I've ever heard, but it's real Morse code. Anyway, when, when I took a look at the debugger, the, the method we were using where we said, okay, when the game writes to 4011, stop and let's see what was going on. Uh, we, we both noticed, uh, Hun Retro Geek and I, they actually set up the DPCM unit and then perform a raw write. So it's as though, you know, the the raw write will step right on it. Uh, it'll it'll undo what the DPCM unit is about to do. Um, so, you know, if it was about to set the waveform, then the raw write would put the waveform in an absolute position anyway. And it's happening so fast that DPCM unit never gets to write. And, and the truth is, I, I think they just, they didn't understand how the unit worked. Uh, there's no... I can't think of a valid reason why you would ever do that. Huh. That's so weird. It's almost as if like someone was like started to raise their hand to ask a question and then the other hand like knocks it down. It's like, never mind. Like, yeah, it's absolutely <laughs> it. It's like, I, I don't know how to explain it, but it's like you threw a bucket of paint over, uh, you know, the, the, the thing you, you were just about. So yeah, you kick off all the registers, say, hey, DPCM unit, here's the length. 
Here's the sample rate, and the game does all of this. It sets all the parameters properly as though it's going to play a DPCM sample, and then right at the end, it just sets the waveform to an absolute position anyway. And since you're playing so frequently, the DPCM unit never gets a chance. You know, theoretically, you would, if you set up the DPCM unit and then you did the raw write, and you only did that once, then the DPCM unit would continue. But since you're doing it quicker than the DPCM unit gets started, you're just restarting the unit over and over and over again. Therefore, it doesn't have any effect. Huh. Uh, really bizarre. That was a weird yeah. one. And and I, I, I have a feeling like, uh, I think you guys showed me the, the Ninja Gaiden in Europe where the DPCM, the PAL version, the DPCM is pointing in the wrong spot and it just clicks instead yes. of the actual mm-hmm. samples. Yeah. And, and that's kind of stuff I think is really interesting because you're like, oh, whoa, the developers, they dropped the ball. But with sound, it's so... Um, you know, so open interpretation, you know, it, it, it's uh, a click is percussive, you know, they probably would have never caught it. And, and you know, with this, I, I think like, OK, they just didn't understand the unit, but it sounded fine. So where was the issue? You yeah. know, we would mm-hmm. have never known. The sample doesn't sound crappy because they're doing that. It sounds crappy because it's a crappy sample. You know <laughs> yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but as soon as I saw that, my eyes lit up because I said, oh, my God, is that why it sounds so bad? Is it because they're, they're screwing with the APU in a way you're not supposed to? And then, you know, uh, a, a, a quick couple of tests said, no, the sample's actually really bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, Konami shows up twice in this list just uh, for just the 10th and 11th entries. Uh, this paints a picture that PCM was something they just dabbled with for a short time on the NES, and they only use it for the introductions uh, Blades of Steel and the Adventures of Bayou Billy. Blades of Steel. The Adventures of Bayou Billy. So, I mean, Blades of Steel, I think that is the most memorable sample uh, in, in my lifetime. That's the first one I turned on and said, whoa. You know, like, uh, to call out the, the title screen like that was, was pretty incredible. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's great. I have another one, which I'll bring up in a second, uh, which is my, like, the first thing that comes to my mind. Um, but I just I just wanted to quickly stick in here this one weird example. Uh, it's an unlicensed Color Dreams game called Robodemons. And I, I just love the title screen audio. So uh, here it is, Robodemons. Robodemons. Whoa, that's a great one. I've never that's heard awesome. that one. It's it's actually a, a really great visualization of the system needing to pause. Um, because on the title screen, there's sort of like these sprites walking back and forth. And with like every bell chime, like, you know, everything freezes on the screen. So it's like they, they have to constantly stop. Oh, that's a great example. Again, you know, there's, uh, I guess developers, you know, they have a threshold for acceptable failure. And they're like, no one cares. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like uh, <laughs> uh, the better games wouldn't wouldn't do that they would ha- try to hide it in a way like in between menus or during a cutscene. but you know if they just stop in the middle of nowhere in this color dreams game nobody cares i just have to appreciate the name robo demons like it i don't know everything about that the guy saying it like it's so cool <laughs> <laughs> it's a great one um so this is what i had in mind before the uh the I'm bad from bad dudes is raw PCM. And I mistakenly like in our NES overview episode, I think uh, referred to it as DPCM, but it's not, it is raw PCM. I'm bad. Yeah. Like it, it's funny though. Cause like the I'm bad from bad dudes is raw PCM, but like the Cowabunga, Cowabunga! from like, you know, Ninja Turtles is not, you know what I mean? So it's like, you could make that same mistake, you know? Oh, exactly. Yeah. It's like the, the Cowabunga is like almost like a little bit better sounding, you know? Yeah. Despite being one bit, it's crazy. Yeah. 
So, 24th on our list is a game that's near and dear to my heart, which would be Big Bird's Hide and Speak. Um, <laughs> does have, I guess, recognition for being one of the games with the clearest speech. Has a good amount of it as well. So, my, my parents, when I had an NES, like my little brother, I guess he was like, you know, he was like six years younger than me. Um, they wanted to buy educational games because he felt left out. Um, I just remember uh, my little brother was very small. He was probably three so like 1993 um uh, and i remember that like if you press the wrong button or something to to just do this it keeps saying at uh, the big bird keeps saying press the big black button to move little bird press the big black button to move little bird um and like that's something in our household that will still mock people with like if i go back to my parents house and like someone hesitates and can't figure out what to do someone like my mom or dad will go press the big black button to move little bird like at us like you know like instructions you stupid like do something you know so uh it's fantastic <laughs> um but anyway yeah, enough about the private story uh you know this is actually one of the more iconic and clear speeches in any of these games uh so this is one of the go to examples hi Let's play hide and speak. Choose a game. Make the word nap. Find the first letter in nap. Oh boy, you found N. That's K. Wow, yay! Let's play again. How many words can you make before the sun goes down? I guess, I guess a lot of stories are coming up about, you know, memories with family and everything. And for me, like Blades of Steel, uh, me and my cousin used to yell pickle pass at each other all the time in, in elementary school. <laughs> we go pickle pass and we throw the thing because we couldn't even make out what it was saying. But I, th I think it just I think it just speaks to the uh, the fact that speech was so compelling. You know, even if it mm -hmm. sounded like like crap, it, it, it was uh it was so memorable because games hadn't done it before. It, it blew my mind. Just like, you know, Sega CD came out and we were blown away by the fact that it was video. This yeah. was like the first baby step where, you know, you heard somebody talk and it's like an earworm. It's like, especially when you're playing a video game where there's so much repetition. And I, I think, you know, these stories come up where we both had the same experience that, uh, you know, the pause screen drove somebody crazy, yeah. you know, just because it was this repetition and, you know, you saying the Big Bird thing and Pickle yeah. Pass and... Yeah, I think I just think that it you know it was such an interesting thing to be happening that you couldn't help but be intrigued uh, and have it be a memorable experience. You know, I remember some someone on a forum once writing a flexta pass as their interpretation of that sample. So that's what I hear every time I hear it, flexta pass. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Actually, we should look up because I still don't know. I think hit the pass. If I had to guess. <laughs> oh no no no! I got it! I got it! Sorry, let's see. Hold on. Yeah. Okay, so here, I got it right here. <laughs> I gotta know. NES passing soundbite is garbled and interpreted as with the pass or it's a pass, but arcade passing bite is clearly audible and confirms the phrase is get the pass. <laughs> you know, get the pass or something. I don't know. Every, but but it says like, it every says, time like, you pass. Yeah. I like how we're all native English speakers and like we can't decipher that sample. <laughs> but none of us forgot it. I guess that's the point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, um, coming right after uh, Big Bird's Hide and Speak in our list, our chronological list, is The Immortal by Rob Hubbard. It uses a few PCM samples for things like enemy grunts. 
But I just want to bring up again that this game uses 1-bit DPCM in a very strange and unique way. Uh, it's actually the only known example from a classic NES game where a brief DPCM sample is looped to generate a waveform. It makes a very buzzy sounding bass line, which sounds like this. Again, that's just regular DPCM, but given that it's being used in a weird way, and that Rob Hubbard was also behind the Skater Die 2 soundtrack, uh, I think Rob Hubbard deserves recognition for his experimentation with the NES sample channel. I mean, you know, Rob Hubbard has always been kind of on the cutting edge of this kind of stuff, and, you know, it wouldn't surprise me that, that that's true also when it comes to samples, not just, you know, audio in general. Yeah, absolutely. And we actually got our hands on this really, really cool thing here. Kenny McAlpine recently did an interview with Rob Hubbard. Uh, I think it was in June 9th. He's, you know, working on a certain project. I'm actually going to talk about it a little bit more in the uh, comments section of this episode. Uh, but a long story short, our friend Kevin Burke sort of asked a question on our behalf to him um, so that, he, you know, he could ask Rob Hubbard. So here's the audio from uh, Kenny um, asking Rob Hubbard about the, uh, the Immortal soundtrack. But he was really interested in your soundtrack for The Immortal and the Nest. Do you remember that? Yeah. You did, uh, you, you created a sawtooth sample. Did I? Uh, and used that in the bass line. How did you do it? I don't know, I cannot. <laughs> I have no clue. I have no clue, I cannot remember. Um, I can't even, you know, I think there was um, some other register that you could, that I found on the NES that then you could do do some kind of primitive sampling yeah, sound. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't have any, I don't have the source code to that anymore. <laughs> okay. And I cannot, I can't even remember what the hardware was on the old NES because that was so quickly superseded with the, mm. uh, the SNES. Yeah, yeah. You know, I remember the Immortal, I remember the game. A guy called Will Harvey was the programmer. He was a really smart guy, uh -huh. you know. But, um, so the answer to that question, I have no clue. <laughs> uh, it's excellent. It's just good to hear him even weigh in on it. I mean, you know, like some guys like don't even remember it, the games they worked on. So just for him to remember it and remember it, just to hear anything about it, it's just it's just awesome. I love that kind of stuff. That's why we do this. Like, you know? yeah. <laughs> and I, I love to hear too, like the fact that even though he couldn't remember specifically how he did it, he did mention finding the register to do the sample playback which you know so he's talking about the 4011 there so even though he couldn't remember the specifics part of his brain was still saying like oh i remember i found the thing that let me do this and i just find it funny because he used it in really unique ways and might not even realize that what he did uh is like very unique that there's like no other games on the systems like doing the same thing as him it's crazy that is really cool uh, so moving on, the uh, 27th entry on this list is another weird one. It's World Champ, and this one apparently uses 1-bit PCM. Uh, the listeners could be forgiven if they couldn't understand any of that. That the the sample stores then there were counting up words. Those were numbers being spoken. <laughs> I mean, so is, is there any real reason why you'd want to use 1-bit PCM instead of regular 1-bit DPCM? Doesn't that defeat the purpose? I, I'm really trying to take my best. I, I can't think of a good reason. Uh, maybe they were a, a, a PC developer and they used the PC speaker in a way 
uh, as like almost like a one bit or a square modulation uh, to generate speech because you totally could. I'm guessing they had previous experience with a different system and this is how they knew how to do it. And they go, oh, that's the DAC. Just write to the DAC. Um, oh, yeah. That's my guess. That makes sense. So that wraps up all the different bit depths we've run into. So again, there's 7-bit at the max, but we've also now seen it reduced to 4-bit and 1-bit. It could potentially be anything less than 7-bit, though, uh, but we haven't found any other examples yet. Though Hunt Retro Geek did do a ROM hack of Gauntlet 2 to turn the 4-bit samples into 3-bit samples, just to illustrate that you can do it. And of course, it sounds awful. So here are the Welcome Red Warrior and Red Warrior is About to Die samples, which are barely intelligible now. Uh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so kind of continuing on, we wanted to go over a couple other examples we thought stood out for having some pretty lengthy or involved PCM events. Uh, one is from uh, Star Wars Empire Strikes Back, uh, which is pretty cool. pretty good but it's no robo demons no it's, it's definitely no <laughs> robo demons <laughs> and i guess uh so there's also the ending to dirty harry which this is really kind of crazy actually um it uses the whole monologue sequence from the movie um it's like 21 seconds long and i guess this would make it the single longest sequence of pcm in a classic nes game i know what you're thinking punk you're thinking to do five or six shots or only five yeah it's that's pretty nuts um i actually deleted the empty pauses in there and it still adds up to over a solid 15 seconds of audio which is you know very considerable wow how did i not know about that it's weird. It's incredible. It's, it's, I mean, the game is like very incredibly difficult. I was like playing through like save stating it just to get to that part of the game. But yeah, when I saw that, I was really surprised. It's just, it's the longest speech I can think of on the system by like a long so shot. Funny, so funny enough, a lot of people ask me about Super Russian Roulette and they go, is this the, you know, is this the game with the most speech? Is this the talkingest game on the NES? <laughs> and, uh, and I always go, uh, yeah. And they ask me what, Hey, you know, what does have the most speech besides this game? And I usually say, I think it's Big Bird, uh, the speaking game, but I'm wrong, right? Well, I mean, that was like, you know, I don't actually know how many unique words are in Big Bird. I wouldn't be surprised if Big Bird does add up to have more words, uh, like more audio than Dirty Harry. Um, But there's definitely there won't be a single segment of the game that does it all in a row. Yeah, Big Bird has a lot of speech in it, like because it has all the individual characters um, there's multiple games, which multiple game modes have different uh, introductions to explain how to play the game. Um, yeah, and I have to think that end to end, it would be more than 15 seconds. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure. I, and, yeah, including, cool. including the uh, what's the other game? It's like the counts counting or something like that. that oh that yeah, has the, a ton of the too. Sesame Street countdown. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, besides like scat and high speed, I, I never really heard anything that was like a long string, you know, like a whole, uh, I mean, yeah. not even a sentence, like this entire phrase, right? Right. Oh, you know, That's speaking cool. of high speed, I didn't have it queued up for the episode, but I'll, I'll just go ahead and edit this in. Um, high speed, I thought was also a really cool example because that game opens up with like this title screen audio where it's supposed to be like audio coming in through a police scanner or like dis- police dispatcher or whatever. And just the nature of the 7-bit audio like makes it sound like the audio as it would come through those speakers. Like it sounds real. Uh, so yeah, that's a great point. With- I, uh, yeah, it, it sounds like a CV or, or something like that uh, when it comes through. And it's got this beautiful picture of like a Ferrari or something, right? It's yeah. like actually a really high res. Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, yeah. It sounds like because of, uh, you know, they, they worked with the limitation to make it like in a way it doesn't sound low quality at all because that's what you might expect it to sound like. Anyway, so jumping back on track here, uh, I think we looked at more than enough examples here. Uh, just one last thing I want to point out. Um, I tried reaching out to various people credited with having done the audio of some of these games um, because I wanted to see if I could find any sort of personal anecdote about implementing raw PCM back in the day. Uh, you know, with Rob Hubbard, he just remembers finding the register. So you can find a few comments from devs out there on DPCM. But again, none to my knowledge about this raw PCM stuff. So I did get in contact with uh, a Michael Perone, who worked on Super Jeopardy. Let's play Jeopardy. For 200 points, the answer is... But he says, as he recalls, that speech was contracted out to a company called Voxware. So unfortunately, the implementation of this sort of thing still seems to be like a vague and obscure memory where, you know, not much can be said about it today. Well, that's it's sad that that's a dead end, but you know, at least you got in contact with someone, right? Yeah, absolutely. It, it was great getting in contact with him too, just to hearing what he had to say. And I'll actually, I'll publish a sort of mini interview I did with him um, to VG Arc because nonetheless, he talked about some cool stuff. He made a travel guide for the original Game Boy. Um, like you, yeah, can, you were telling me yeah. about this. This seems like a really cool thing. It, it's really interesting, and there's, there's this kind of funny stories related to it. So I'll, uh, you know, when that goes live, I'll post about it on Twitter and whatnot, so people know it's up. Anyway, so before we move on to the next segment of our show, I do want to bring up a few examples of raw PCM in modern uh, homebrew. So the first time I can really recall thinking about raw PCM in NES games and its potential was when this ROM was posted to NES Dev in 2007. Um, I opened it up and was greeted with this audio. What should a Nintendo sound like? Uh, so that was uh created by teples from the nes dev forums and it was their first tech demo of something called quad dpcm which if i understand correctly is a 4-bit adpcm encoder for the nes uh and it was actually used for some audio in the action 53 series of games that were made ah okay i mean I think in a previous episode, you mentioned that you're pretty sure ADPCM showed up in the NES in some fashion, but you couldn't remember how or exactly. Yeah, yeah. This is totally what I was thinking of after all. So uh, I'll link to an older discussion uh, topic about it if anyone would like to know more about it. There's also this pretty fantastic demo from 2009 by another NESDEV member known as Frantic called PCM Demo with Graphics, uh, aptly named. Um, it was uh, it demonstrated PCM that occurred with simultaneous scrolling graphics. And the audio, well, it speaks for itself. Never gonna give you up. Never gonna let you down. Never gonna run around and desert you. Never gonna make you cry. Never gonna say goodbye. Never gonna tell 
man so uh yeah i got legit rickrolled by that uh rom back in the day someone linked it to me saying it was a native tracker for the nes and to put that in context uh at the time that would have been like kind of a big deal uh everyone was saying like oh when is there going to be an lsdj for the nes you know and neil baldwin hadn't you know invented ntrq yet at that point uh, so I opened up the ROM, some, someone saying, you know, like, you know, NES tracker whatever, with some fake name like that. Uh, but then like the Rick Roll, like, there's like a graphic of his face on the screen and that audio plays. Uh, so it's 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 like a funny way to get trolled. But at the same time, it's actually an impressive demo. Yeah, no, when I saw that one, I, I was kind of blown away because it was one of the first times I had seen a song being played mm-hmm. uh, through the actual 7-bit PCM content was a song. So I'd also like to point out efforts by our friend Ahan Retro Geek. You know, we we're he's coming up in this episode a lot because we were talking a lot, you know, in preparation for this episode, sharing his findings and whatnot. He's been working on his own sound engine where he's basically trying to find the sweet spot of cramming in as much raw PCM as possible into something where you can still have simultaneous gameplay. Um, so here's an example of that. It's just an audio demo. Uh, there isn't a, a accompanying gameplay, but it's, it's something where it, it could have accompanying gameplay. I believe at the same audio quality. And it's called uh, pumpkin.nes. It's pretty great. Yeah. Uh, there's also, he also sent us a conversion of the uh, infamous, terrible Super Famicom game, Hong Kong 97, uh, in a file that he named Sorry. So this is uh, sorry.nes. Great. Uh, I love that. I feel like, you know, if there's music in hell, it's just, it's that on loop for all of eternity. (laughs) (laughs) And like, and like not exactly looping correctly. Like that would be even better. Just like getting right to the end of the phrase and just kind of clipping just a little bit. Yeah. I didn't Um, bother. There there were examples earlier where I didn't really bother pointing it out just because we have so many audio examples, but there's like some of these loops, like you can hear a little stutter when they loop. And that's because the title screen graphics will like, change to something else at that moment so you hear a little hiccup in the in the music just because they wanted to cram in some change in the visuals or some kind of change somewhere that's really funny okay so the bulk of this episode wound up being about 7-bit pcm uh in nes games but the reason this episode came about is uh because of our ongoing quest to cover all of the expansion audio in famicom games that's right so something i was kind of surprised to learn was that there were other sources of sound expansion out there which are far less popular than the ones that usually come to mind like the vrc6 the vrc7 the sunsoft 5b etc uh and these were discovered during a time when i wasn't paying as much attention to findings from the community so it's like i completely missed out on this and i had absolutely no idea about them yeah there's a few different kinds of chips out there that provided uh, extra sample playback functionality yeah, so this came as a surprise. 
And since there's not enough content to from these chips to warrant their own episode, uh, I instead wanted to talk about the sort of next step in higher quality sampling for the Famicom and NES and just lump it all together. So, like, I wanted to know... What did people come up with when the stock NES wasn't good enough, essentially? What did they come up with to take things just a little bit further? Yeah, so there's a couple of chips by Jellico uh, known as the NEC Mu PD7755C and the NEC Mu PD7756C. And they're used in seven different sports games published by Jellico. Um, there's also the Mitsubishi M50805, which was used in just one game, Family Trainer 3 of Robic Studio. The kind of crazy part is that it's not entirely known how these work yet, and they're not supported in emulation. So I think these were relatively late discoveries by the community, and you know people might have originally assumed these were just other examples of raw PCM. Um, yeah, you know, just by hearing it, you, you wouldn't be able to tell if it were was using an expansion uh, or a mapper or extra hardware uh, because it's kind of indistinguishable from a, a raw DAC, right? Exactly. Um, so there's no way to hear what these things sound like unless you have the original cartridges and a Famicom to run them on. Uh, I have gameplay audio from YouTube for two of the Jellico games. I always say Haleco. I have no idea how it's pronounced. Yeah, um, it, I, I don't know either. Yeah, it probably um, is Haleco, actually. But <laughs> who, who knows? <laughs> yeah. Um, so here's an excerpt from Shin Moro Pro uh, Yaku, um, a baseball game. And here's an excerpt from Moero Pro Tennis. And thankfully, we do have all the samples from the Mitsubishi chip in Family Trainer 3, supplied by Sean Riddle from the NES Dev Forums. One, two, three, four, good, next, hello, let's go! So there's actually ongoing efforts to learn more about how these chips work. I'll link to some discussions in the comments. The encoding algorithm is believed to be 4-bit ADPCM to 8- or 9-bit PCM, as Budao puts it. Unrelated to the expansion audio, Family Trainer 3 is also known as Dance Aerobics here uh, on the NES. Um, you know, the game that came with like the power pad to do, a, like, you know, sort of like, a, it's considered like the grandfather to DDR. Um that does have some speech in it, but it only uses regular DPCM for that. Come on, let's go. And that game also has a music mode where you can step on the power pad to play different notes. And uh, my VG cover band way back from high school wrote uh, an original song for it, where we actually used two NESs and two copies of Dance Aerobics. <laughs> and, uh, that is awesome. I actually, there's like a picture of it somewhere too. I'll, I'll see if I can like find that and link that. Um, I actually managed to find some old audio of a live performance even uh, from our old MySpace. It's still up. Um, wow. So I, I think this might be from an older MAGFest. Like maybe this is MAGFest 5 or something. Uh, or it might just be another show. I actually really don't know. Um, but here is uh, some of the Power Pad song uh, from my old band, The Parasprinter.
It's hilarious. Oh, that's awesome. It's a blast from the past. Uh, yeah, seriously. <laughs> it's weird. It's like the beginning, the audio like only has like the like the latter like kind of half of the song. I don't even remember what the first half sounds like, but uh yeah, at least part of it was uh documented, so. Oh yeah, of course. We almost forgot to mention there's also the uh MMC5 sound expansion. Yeah. Um so that also offered uh support for PCM playback, but uh we will be talking about that more in an MMC5 episode. Yeah, so stay tuned. Okay, ultimately, this brings us to Super Russian Roulette, because on the subject of games that wanted to do more than what the stock NES could handle, um, Andy came up with something kind of totally insane here. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, well, well, so I, you you introduced the game before, right? But like, tell us a little bit about the game again. Um, where did the idea? How? Where did this come from? So you know, it, it really kind of started with. Um, I like to do these one-off projects with uh, older consoles. So, you know, I had done a, a drinking game for the NES called Drunkenness uh, some <laughs> years back. And the idea was that there was an alcohol sensor in a cartridge and you'd blow into it and it would read your blood alcohol and you'd get a score and play like these cutesy sounds and everything. Uh, so I, the, the reason I liked working on these one-off projects is it wasn't a whole game. It just had one interesting aspect. It was one punchline. And then I got to work on hardware. Um, so I, I started, you know, when you read like the Nestev wiki, every now and then you'll poke around and see what you can do with uh, certain registers. And I said, you know, I never actually done anything with the zapper and I was curious about how it worked. Uh, so I, I went on to just, you know, make a demo where I shot something on the screen and then, uh, didn't, I was just moving to Brooklyn. So I didn't have my CRTs with me, but I had my HDTV. And uh, I wanted to make a game that didn't need the TV. Uh, so I said, okay, well, you know, for those who don't know, the Zapper doesn't work with HDTVs for a, a number of reasons. Yeah, I learned. Uh, it'll only work. Yeah. <laughs> I learned the hard way trying to play Duck Hunt on an HDTV a bunch of years back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people are saying, you know, oh, no, it could, it, it'll never work. Um, for And there's good reasons for it. I said, I wanted to make a game where uh, that was kind of subversive and strange where, uh, you know, Everybody has this, they pick up a gun or a toy gun and a light gun and they point it at the screen and they try to kill the thing on the screen. But we thought it, or I thought it'd be really funny if you turn it the other way. Because sometimes you get reactions from people like, whoa, that's messed up. And it's like, okay, so murder's okay, but with a gun pointing the other way, it's kind of <laughs> screwed up. And I, I, I kind of try to um, embrace that weirdness that happens at the table. So turn more into like a, a video board game than mm-hmm. a... Uh, an NES game the way you traditionally think of it because the players look at each other as much as they look at the screen and that that's what was really compelling uh, for me it's kind of like what Nintendo meant to do with those weird switch party games that have come out today Um, oh sure but but what you've come up with is like way cooler (laughs) and more fun than the crap (laughs) they've just pumped out so thanks I I appreciate that you know it 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 works a lot better than it sounds on paper and I count myself pretty fortunate for that because essentially you're buying if you know you purchase this game which is hardware only uh, you're buying a really expensive 1d6 right Mm -hmm. it's not you know you, you roll the cylinder and then you hit the button and if the bullet was in there, you're out, and that's it. So it's all about presentation. You know, I had a friend in college, this guy Rob, uh, and he's the nicest guy, and you know, real, real normal. 
And then after he had a few drinks in him, he'd walk around and start grabbing his belt and talking like a cowboy. And, you know, we barely knew him at the time. And I said, oh, you know, he must be from the South or something. And this guy's never been South of like Pennsylvania. He's just a nut. So, um, so I, I, I started playing with the zapper and I, I, again, I used wild gunman sprite. So it's really funny that you brought that up. And, uh, you know, I just made a simple game where you play against the, the, the sprite and I drew a table in front of him. And then you'd spin and make the use the noise channel for the ticking of the gun spinning. And, you know, the screen would flash red when you lose and, and stuff like that. And then the initial plan was to have him speak. I'm really fond of punch out, you know, on my bucket list before I was 30, it was said, I'm going to beat Tyson. And now I can. It took a lot of practice, <laughs> but, I, but I, punch out is, is very memorable to me because if you think, I can't think of, I mean, and I'm, I know one of you are going to say a game. That, that fits this description. But for me, that game had the most memorable characters, right? Like you remember, oh, Glass Joe's a wimp. Oh, you know, Von Kaiser, it, you know, he's got that bushy mustache and you know, Bald Bull is, you know, kind of thick. Yeah, everybody had their own personality. And I think that was something that was lacking in that era of, of games, you know, large characters that um, are really memorable. So the original, uh, I wrote an engine to let you load... Uh, a very large background. So I'm using a whole character set for every pose of the cowboy, meaning that every time he changes poses, that's all of the Super Mario Brothers tiles. Like, it's using a, a ton. And then his uh, face uh, are, are made of sprites, right? That way they can animate and speak. Mm -hmm. And originally, he would just kind of, you know, chirp that kind of vocal... Uh, I don't know what you would call it. Like, you know, when you use the square wave to simulate... Uh, oh, totally. Like the wah, wah, wah. Yeah, yeah, you know, mm -hmm. burp, 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 burp. and that was also an homage to Punch Out, and that's the way it was originally. And then, uh, since, like I said, I'm an electrical engineer, I, I, I was more interested in designing hardware to give him voice because then I'm like, oh, I could just record my friend Rob, and you know, we can have this cowboy start insulting the player and and getting riled up. And so I asked Rob, I said, can you send me a bunch of WAV files? And he sent me something called Cowboy.zip. And it had a hundred WAV files in it, and they were all just the craziest things you've ever heard. I'm like, all right, this game has to be spoken. You ever tasted tumbleweed? I mean, I ain't just seeing if you have. Wonder what that tastes like. You know them haystack cookies made out of peanut butter and buddy scotch and uh, what do you call them? Chow mein noodles? Looks sort of like a funny little bird nest. My granny used to make them for turkey day, except she used salt instead of the old sugar, and she used real hay. I still eat them because, you know, free cookies. And uh, so the original yeah, the original development was on the Power Pack. And I, I can't remember. I think I think it was 512K of PRG. Now, DPCM, uh, we didn't really discuss it before. Maybe we touched on it briefly. But the highest quality bit rate you can get is uh, 33 kilohertz or so. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And when you're running at that rate, you actually end up at a perfect 4 kilobyte sample 4096 bytes so one second at 33k gives you a 4k sample so i said perfect you know i can get a minute in and that's 240k and i'll use the other 256k for code um but then we outgrew that and i was just uh, <laughs> so i made a one meg cart and then that was like okay that's almost four minutes of audio plus the game code but then i don't know we just kept getting more and more samples and the stuff that was about to hit the cutting room floor was just too good. Uh, so 
I, I'd like uh, my friend Chris uh, Citrix. Uh, he's obsessed with, with with the way this works, but I figure you know if this is sort of an inside secret. But if you've been listening this long to this podcast, I think you're cool. So <laughs> you probably deserve like some technical insight. Um, the the mapper and nobody knows this yet, but the mapper is a, a very bizarre one. And because I got to design it from scratch, I got it to I got to create it. Uh, exactly to fit the needs of the game I wanted to make. Um, but I got to design it from the ground up. So the mapper is 256 kilobytes of CHR, which is common, 256 kilobytes of PRG, which is also common. But tacked on to it is an 8 megabyte, that's 64 megabit chip using something called SPI, which is a serial to parallel interface. So I guess the game is 8 and a quarter meg. Mm-hmm. Um, Wow. And it, it, yeah, so an SPI chip is interesting because it, it works a lot like the controller reads we were talking about before, where, you know, you can ask for information one piece at a time in a linear way. Uh, now, that's awesome for things where you have to stream data, but it's not so great if you want to run code out of it because you need random access code branches. It jumps all over. But with SPI, if I ask for a byte and I ask for the next one, it just moves in a linear fashion. So you can't run code out of it, but you can stream data. So what I did is I mapped it into C000, which is the space where you can play DPCM out of. Uh, and what's interesting about that is the cowboy has five one-minute rants. Wow. Uh, and the way it's actually being done is is tricking the DPCM unit. So... If you imagine that I, uh, there's a flag in the DPCM unit called uh, loop flag, and they, they probably used it for um, like the, the crowd noise that uh, we heard yes. punch mm-hmm. out. You know, you hear, you know, rah, 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 rah. you could hear where it, it's like periodic. Now, that would happen if I was pointed at ROM. It would play that sample and then kick back to the beginning. But in the case where I'm tricking it and feeding it a new bite every time, if I kick that loop flag off and it's reading from that region, it's feeding it a new bite. Uh, because it's not actually accessing ROM. It's just giving the next byte off that stream. So I kick off the loop flag and I run it for 60 seconds. It's just going to read linearly through that. So it's ROM. kind of like, like the NES has no idea what's going on, but it's just, it's like there's an outside source that keeps passing it notes. And the NES is like, oh, I'm doing this now, basically. Totally. So uh, my mapper, since, uh, you know, it's designed with a, a thing called a CPLD, it's a complex programmable logic device. And basically, I'm making my own MMC1 or MMC3. Um, and because of that, I can I can do stuff like that, like tack on this extremely cheap form of memory that you can't really run code out of. Um, but you can stream samples like that. And what we exactly like you said, what I've done is pull the rug out from under the NES and it's trying to access ROM. C000 to CFFF which is just a 4K of contiguous memory, whenever the NES goes tries to read it, I take the ROM off the bus and I put on a fake byte pulled from SPI. So I'm essentially tricking it. It's trying to do normal access. And I'm like, oh, no, no, this is what you saw. You saw this byte. You didn't see what was at that, that memory location. So if I set the loop, it runs from C000 to CFFFF over and over, but it's feeding a continuous stream of data. So the way I play those rants, like I said, is I kick on the loop flag, I let it run for 60 seconds, then I turn it off. And it's a one continuous uh, phrase. That's incredible. Um, so, wow. So yeah, yeah, it's a kind of a crazy trick. And I, you know, I know it's, well, I don't know. You never know anything, but I, I'm pretty sure it's never been done. 
And I wanted someone to put it in and go, whoa, I don't remember Nintendo games doing that. And even if they aren't diehard collectors or diehard uh, enthusiasts, I'd say, I still want them to be like, huh, I guess games used to talk like that, but I don't remember. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I, I just kind of want to show what the NES can do. You know, if you had a lot of memory and, you know, you, you were not, you didn't belong to a company that was trying to save money. Like I said, if your game's 129 kilobytes, that means you're buying a 256 kilobyte chip, which means, I don't know, it could double in cost. You don't know. So this is sort of like a what if some crazy rich person uh, back in the day made a game without any concerns about profitability. Right. It's like, you know, uh, it's like Nintendo gave me a blank check. (laughs) Uh, But the the, the truth is, uh, you know, you bleed money everywhere. Like for this campaign, you know, Kickstarter made $84,000 and everyone says, cool, you made $84,000, but I'm here to tell you that there's, there's a few grand left. And it's because I put every dollar into making the game as incredible as I could. Like eight meg, the game was originally supposed to be one meg and I figured out how to make it eight meg. Um, so there's a lot of R and D involved with that. So I, I really just wanted to make like a showpiece to say, look, you know, the NES you may have thought was simplistic uh, in a lot of ways, but the the mapper hardware uh, could really push it kind of over the edge. Well, and actually, a, a fully voiced game is cool. Uh, and I wanted to ask you actually a bit about the production because um, I don't know if I'm misremembering or if I have the right impression here. Didn't you have like some crazy wireless rig for flashing a bunch of carts simultaneously? Oh yeah, so um, that's the other thing. All the tools were designed in house. You know, I can't just go buy. Uh, a Nintendo development kit, you know, that even if they it existed, they uh, it wouldn't sell to me. Right. So, you know, even the mechanism in, in which to flash the cartridges was uh, a circuit design that I had done. Um, I had done one for the Sega Genesis some time back for uh, visual performances, just like a flasher and a blank cart. So I almost made like a floppy drive and a floppy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it went over USB. But eventually, you know, the Kickstarter went so well, I said, oh, geez, I'm on the hook for over a thousand carts. One flasher isn't enough. And uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Adam, took them and hooked them up to Raspberry Pis and made this wireless flashing setup. So basically, I have like this gang programming system. And I'd like to think I'm the largest NES manufacturing factory in the world. Uh, <laughs> I think that might be true right now. Yeah, I'd love to know like what the, the retro USB rig looks like in comparison oh, to yours because yeah. those are you guys right now probably have like the most dedicated setup i'd imagine that's a great question I actually don't know what brian uses for his uh for his flashing yeah maybe he uses a, a copy nest or, or something like that but what was really nice you know adam did an incredible job on the stuff there's a gui and you could flash all and it flashes the um each chip has like a green yellow or red status as it's programming and if one is uh one flash is red i take it out and put it in a certain bin and you know, lo and behold, two pins are shorted on that particular chip. So troubleshooting has gone way, way down. Wow. But I've spent I've spent countless hours. I mean, this project has taken every last bit of energy. It was really ambitious and went way bigger than I thought. And everyone has been extremely positive about this game. I, I'm just blown away by uh, the support behind it. And I think people wanted to see something like this. Because a lot of homebrew, I think, is uh, just kind of a twist on an old game mechanic like Mm -hmm. it's like mega man but it's a puzzle game where you and i i wanted to do something that was more like the aerobics thing you were showing before where you know it had some other use that that happened off screen 
for instance, using the power pad as an instrument is, is I think in the same line of thinking that I had when, when I was thinking of this game, using a peripheral in a way uh, that it was not intended for. The, the, the key difference being that you uh, know how to make new tools and push the technology where uh, I was stuck to giving, using what dance robots <laughs> offered. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, it, it, it's the thought of repurposing is what's mm-hmm. important. I, I think it's, it's really cool. Sorry if I'm rambling. Uh, no, uh, no, that's great. It's pretty late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, uh, we're all up pretty late here. Um, something I want to ask pretty quickly is, um, before pointing out this uh, one other important thing about it, this game was back through Kickstarter, and most copies of the game have gone to Kickstarter backers. Are there any remaining leftovers that are still available for purchase? Or so I, I actually have, you know, a couple hundred copies left, and it's at superrussianroulette.com um but after that i I probably won't make this game again oh yeah i wanted to point out actually to our listeners if you aren't able to get uh your hands on a copy um but it's something that you want to see or experience at some time you know go to magfest or some major gaming convention uh because i am pretty certain this will be a staple uh at events like those in the future like you know you could just reach out like hey is anyone going to have this game at magfest and you know someone will bring it um someone will set it up and uh it's definitely going to be a thing i think so yeah it's just such a freak show that uh, i think (laughs) everybody wants to see it like it um again everybody's been so supportive like uh luke luke douglas from bit brigade uh put up a picture for the fourth of july he set it up in the back of his bronco and was riding around like an ice cream truck to all these parties and uh just opening up the back I'll send you a picture. Uh, maybe we could post it in the comments. Absolutely. And it's just, a, it's a big Sony Vega T, like, or Trinitron TV with like an extension cord hanging out with the NES and like a bottle, of, <laughs> like, like some bottle of whiskey no, no, great. and the gun. And it's like the back of a Bronco is open. So he was just driving around to different parties and like opening up and playing roulette at these parties. The way it plays, like I said, on paper, you'd say, okay, well, that's interesting. But, uh, it, it, it really resonates with a lot of people. Um, I'm just blown away. Everyone has been so cool about it and it got me on here. So that's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I want to quickly point out too, is that you actually held a uh, competition to have music, uh, put into the game and, um, Steve won a track. Steve, what, like, what was it? Was that a Famicompo uh, composition? Uh, it was, yeah, it was for uh, battle of the bits actually, uh, kind of a tie in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, one of my tracks ended up on there, one of uh, JMR's tracks, and one of uh, uh, Luax. Yeah, Luax Erickson's tracks uh, ended up on there, uh, which is pretty cool. What's awesome, it, yeah, I wasn't picking favorites. That's what was so good about it. So, <laughs> you know, Battle of the Bits voted, and, and uh, the top three were uh, were my top three, or my, in my top five. Uh, and it was just so awesome, it, because they... Um, the game has a Western theme, so we wanted like a ragtime or like kind of like a a trail song, like something you'd have around a campfire. And you, you and Jeff, pretty nailed it. Uh, it uh, <laughs> those tracks are incredible, and we and instantly we knew uh, uh, Teddy Bear Rag, which is <laughs> which is Steven's track, yeah. and uh, and uh, Three Glass Boots. It, it they, they just sound amazing. That's a really fun contest uh, to put together.
And actually, there, there's that other hardware trick in there. I probably should bring oh, up. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, that's that's yeah. It, we'd be uh, it'd be criminal not to bring it up. Using having nine minutes of audio uh, or ten minutes of you know ten minutes total, kind of with the nicknames. It's under three megs, right? So I, I had five megs left, uh, and I wanted to do something special with it. Uh, I said, okay. It's seven bits of audio. I'm going to arbitrarily choose 11 kilohertz, and I'm going to play high-quality versions of the three themes. So I had Nick Gargiulo, who's a great friend of mine, like, used to play in bands, and he composed all the music in Famitracker, but that was his first time ever... He's not, like, a chip guy or anything. That was his first time ever using a tracker, and he knocked it out of the park. And instead of, like, downsizing a composition into Famitracker, we went the other way. And he went to Ableton and mixed like live brass, and it sounded like a, a Morricone Ecstasy of Gold thing. And there's live whistling and a little, you know, saloon sounds. That's pretty great to have like a sound test that includes um, music tracks that are just the normal stock NES, you know, the, the chiptune music, but then you also have the full tracks of uh, like actual music in there as well. Yeah, so uh, thanks again, Andy, for joining us. Um, again, like we love exploring the weird nooks and crannies of audio of these different systems, and it's been a pleasure having you on. And you know, thanks so much for uh, joining us to talk about it. Oh, thanks so much. This was a blast, and I'm such a huge fan. It's really uh, great what you guys are doing. Just keep up the great work. Well, thank you. Yeah, we appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. All right, well, uh, take care. We'll talk to you later. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, so uh, what else is going on? Uh, so I wanted to briefly mention um, Kenny McAlpine, who supplied, you know, conducted that interview with Rob Hubbard and supplied us with that audio, uh, is working on a free online course about the history of video game music. Uh, so we'll link to that in the show notes. Um, the address is futurelearn.com slash courses slash video game music. 
with uh, hyphens between the words video game music. So basically, he was interviewing Rob Hubbard for that project, and uh, just that question was just like a tangential thing he asked, uh, you know, with thanks to uh, Kevin Burke uh, sort of like forwarding him that question for us. Um, but it sounds really cool. It covers, it's again, it's a completely free online course. It covers everything from 8-bit music to, you know, more modern uh, stuff uh, with a lot of analysis and interviews. It says from the site, the course draws on technology, musicology, and cultural studies to chart the development of video game music from the geometric tones of Pong to the complex arrangements of today's first-person shooters. Um, so again, I just, you know, encourage everyone to check that out. I think if you listen to our podcast, that sounds like something you would probably enjoy too. Yeah, Kenny's doing some really cool stuff. Uh, that's going to be a really cool class. Um, you know, we've kind of talked uh, with Kenny, uh, you know, a little bit behind the scenes about what to expect. So uh, I'm definitely going to, uh, I'm definitely going to check it out yeah, once it's out. So. Absolutely. Yeah, he's, um, doing, he's doing great work too. I mean, the fact that he's putting lots of work in uh, original research to put into his project, of course, um, you know, it, I think it's going to be great. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. So, uh, I guess let's take a look at some of the comments from our previous episode about the Super Nintendo. So, we have a comment from our friend Baron Knoxberry. Uh, he pointed out, he said, What? You noobs! Check out Mod2SBC, which offers the echo slash reverb feature. Um, <laughs> which is a funny comment. I uh, In the episode, I had mentioned that... Like a lot of the features were not existent um, in like most tools that were out there, and I was sort of complaining about the um, how the XM converter didn't offer any of those features. Um, but I made the mistake of assuming that the XM converter was kind of the same as the other converters, um, but it isn't. So the mod to SBC does offer some of those features like echo and reverb, uh, which is great. So there is like a, a you know an easier way to get to some of those features than I had realized. So yeah, yes. Uh, yeah, so Baron links to uh, the the SNES mod, and there's a link to it. You can get it from there. So uh, check it out. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so we also have another uh, comment here by Michael Reyes Maldonado. Uh, Surprised to hear no mention of Killer Instinct soundtrack, especially consider that it was a pack in, upon release and included a bunch of vocal samples. It's very true. Um, I never realized how much that really did contribute to the SNES, and I actually loved the Bubsy Rips. Good, someone actually loved them. Uh, you know, especially after, I mean, we played them twice to make sure you heard them. Um, anyway, uh, what is the method of Im implementing those? Are they just sample uh, downsides and insert into most, in most cases? What are your experiences with Super Audio Cart and SNES Verb? Do you guys feel like it does justice to the sound? And uh, I'd love to see a consolidated version of the show notes and also like a link to the Patreon. Uh, thanks. I'll be listening. Yeah, so uh, for the first question, I actually don't really know, and I responded to this on the page, but just yeah. to reiterate, uh, I'm not sure of a good way of assessing the samples. Um, anytime you have samples that aren't part of the SBC soundtrack, um, because like a, a lot of the SBC files don't include sound effect rips, um, which is kind of unfortunate. I wish they did. Because, um, you know, like there's some NSF files, if you're looking at NSF soundtracks, that do include sound effects. In mm -hmm. fact, our friend uh, Mr. Norbert has gone to like great lengths to like re-rip NSFs that don't have sound effects just so he can put them in, because um, his perspective is like a soundtrack rip isn't complete unless you also have access to the sound effects, which I think is an amazing philosophy, and I'm like 100% behind that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, because there's a lot of great like I was looking for examples of like pitch modulated SNES like audio files and stuff like that, and those show up more in sound effects than they do in music. But like I 
don't really have like a way of like getting at it. So it's kind of the same thing with the Bubsy samples. Like I know those vocal samples exist, but I only just ripped them from gameplay. I didn't have like a way to like get at them in the data, you know. Um, there's maybe some way of doing that via ROM hacking, but that's like the you know outside my area of knowledge, at least for the time being. Yeah. So also the next thing that was kind of asked about was Super Audio Cart, which I do have experience with. Um, it kind of operates like a VST uh, mostly. Um, so it does have a, a lot of the effects that you need, but it's not, I mean, it's not so like you could take whatever you're producing on Super Audio Cart and, uh, you know, play it off console. It, it, it just basically makes, it, it's just like another DAW tool. Um, it's very good though, uh, and has a lot of good samples, so I'd recommend checking it out. Yeah, and the SNES Verb is um, really cool. It's like, isn't that the, that's the, uh, like the plugin effect that like uh, recreates the reverb of the SNES? I believe uh, so, yeah. And I haven't like had a chance to use it or like examine it yet. Like I would kind of love to go through all of the different parameters and see if they're exact to the hardware being like, Oh, every, um, you know, of every stage of the effect adds like another 16 milliseconds to the delay or whatever it was, um, to see if it's truly exact. But for, just from like a casual listen, I think it really sounds a lot just like the SNES reverb. It sounds pretty accurate to me. So again, you know, I, I haven't done that comparison, but it looks really cool. And like, I had a friend, um, Alex actually had mentioned like, why doesn't this exist as like a guitar pedal? Like I would happily, <laughs> I would happily pay 200 bucks for like the SNES verb, like in just a physical unit. Um, yeah. so if someone out there has like, you know, in the, is likes to engineer, you know, musical related hardware, uh, hint, hint, uh, I guess, I think there would be demand for super Nintendo, uh, reverb pedal. That'd be awesome. Actually. So I guess one of the last things here, uh, well, two last things here are the show notes. So we usually post the show notes here on SoundCloud, which is where uh, the podcast lives for now. It's kind of our home. Um, so we usually post the notes there. Um, we have debated and we've talked about uh, off podcasts a little bit about, I guess, how we'd implement these things, uh, you know, uh, with recent things that I've been hearing about SoundCloud and whatnot, you know, we have to consider the future as well. Uh, and also, yeah, it, it's very hard to like, I guess put these notes in some kind of organized format, uh, considering they're kind of like listen along. So the easiest way we've been doing is just kind of mark them in as we go. Uh, so if we say it's in the show notes, it's usually on like just for anyone who's listening. If we say it's in the show notes, it's usually like a tag on the uh, the official SoundCloud thing. That's where you usually find it. Yeah, the the one issue we run into with like uh, publishing show notes, and I, I would like to find a way to do it better is um, our episodes are kind of embarrassingly, uh, honestly, very heavily scripted. Um, just it's sort of the nature of the show. Like we use so many audio examples. It's kind of like making a PowerPoint presentation in advance where mm -hmm. like it's hard to have just a fully natural, loose conversation and like fix everything in post. Um, so we do pre-script out a lot of stuff. So what, what winds up happening with our show notes is we go from like a loose skeleton of an episode to just like fleshing out lots and lots of stuff. So any sort of show notes we have originally gets lost into just like a giant kind of show script in a way. Um, so it's kind of like we don't really have a list that's easy to publish. You'd basically just kind of be reading like something that's like 70% of the episode. Um, so that that's kind of like that's kind of why we just sort of anytime we mention something that we want to have in the show notes we just sort of like link it uh, in the SoundCloud comments for the time being. But um, if if there is a demand for like better show notes, like let us know and like that's something I would consider like releasing or publishing somewhere like maybe to the Patreon page or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, we, uh, we do have a Patreon. We are. Uh, it was weird uh, that we both realized that we weren't linking it everywhere. Um, yeah. So we are just at patreon.com slash retro game audio and as one word. So uh, 
yeah, so just check us out there. But yeah, I hope that answers some of those questions. Um, we're thinking of, there's a lot of things we've been thinking about for the future as to how to kind of like make the, the offline content a little bit more robust. Um, so we'll keep you guys posted. Uh, we obviously are working on that, so. Yes. Yeah, so XYZ chimed in, I think just sort of backing us up on the idea of like why there isn't much uh, homebrew music tools or that they don't have like a fully fleshed out state, I guess. Uh, he says, my guess is that the people who make the tools and compose the homebrew music for hold the same uh, naive stance on the chip of, oh wow, eight channels of 32 kilohertz samples. Lame. And there hasn't been much of a push for it. Yeah, it's sort of what we were talking about, that the, it's uh, Super Nintendo, because it's so simple on the surface of what it offers, like, oh, just channels a sample playback, that the tools are a little bit behind on it. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you can kind of do a lot of things like that already with a lot of other tools. It's basically what we said, but like, it's one thing that I think Patrick and I talked about this even before this episode, uh, you know, a little bit, like how it really opened our eyes as to how complex and interesting and like a different world of things. Like we're so obsessed with the 2A03 and other things and like mapping everything out. This is like just as complex or more complex uh, with a lot of its features. And the fact that it doesn't have like, you know, there's no like dedicated, huge, massive forum with a bunch of people like picking apart every little part of this is kind of a shame. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it definitely needs more documentation and it definitely needs people just as dedicated as the people on Nest dev uh working on this stuff you know oh, and totally. there are people out there but yeah. I mean, it needs that many people working on this. exactly really and, and we were ignorant of some of the tools again like the the mod converter that was pointed out to us like totally offered more features than i had realized um yeah but still i mean i not to beat a dead horse too much but it's like i, I really want to see a full-blown uh well-made tracker that just offers all the features like to me um SNES music you know, homebrew scene hasn't reached like what it really needs to yet until there is just the fama tracker type equivalent like oh this is the tracker that like can do everything basically yeah um, yeah that's that's sort of uh, what we need what we would like to see from the Super Nintendo scene so and I guess the last comment here is by Hunretro Geek uh, which is actually really interesting uh, this is what Hunretro Geek has to say. It actually has, it, it being the Super Nintendo, actually has a 6502 compatibility mode. It could do everything the 6502 could do, but even more. So developers didn't have to adjust the new stuff as much when transitioning from the NES to the SNES. That's really smart, actually. Because, I mean, you know, the 2A03 is a, you know, uh, MOS technology 6502 compatible, you know, basically modified version of that core. So the idea that there was a compatibility mode built into the actual system itself means that, you know, you could just transfer, you, you know, it made it really easy, which is kind of awesome. Yeah, I think, Hun, like, off the podcast and maybe not mentioned in the comments, I think Hun Retro Geek was speculating that there might have originally been an attention to possibly have backwards compatibility on the Super Nintendo. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, like, how flushed out, you know, maybe we're just ignorant of it. Like, maybe that's a well-known fact and I, and I just have no idea. Um, but the fact that it has the compatibility compatibility mode in there it's like is that like the skeleton of or you know is that sort of like a vestigial remnant of uh something they were intending to flush out for backwards compatibility i mean there were games too that were developed like uh i think or mother 2 and i believe final fantasy 4 were both originally supposed to be uh nintendo games i think i think i know that about final fantasy 4 um, and like when you look at the Final Fantasy four and you think about the graphics and everything, it's not much different than Final Fantasy three, which was on Famicom. Um, so I think yeah, that like, it, doesn't, you know, it doesn't have yeah. that, that huge leap up that like Final Fantasy six has where you can tell like mm -hmm. all the sprites are much bigger and it really feels designed for Super Nintendo. I could definitely see mm -hmm. that like 
I never really thought about that, but four. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I didn't even think about that either until yeah. now, and it makes sense why these games would just be kind of like scaled up uh, Super Nintendo games or scaled up Nintendo games because I guess you know four meets function. If you're making for Nintendo, it's just like oh, I can do a little bit more than what I was doing before, and it's not that complicated. That 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 was actually really helpful for devs. It had to have been. Funny, this is just a totally random tangent, but just talking about like the the name of the Super Nintendo itself. I, I did see a, a random comment online about Super Russian Roulette, and people asking, mm-hmm. like, why is it called that? Like, wouldn't that make more sense if it's a Super Nintendo game? Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, I mean, I, I I sort of disagree. The The whole reason the Super Nintendo is called the Super Nintendo uh, is because there already was a precedent for just slapping the name Super on things at the time to make it, like, sound cool or special. Um, and, of course, there were a bunch of games for the Super Nintendo that had Super in the name. There's, like, there's, like a shitload of them. Yeah. Um... But, like, that itself, it's not because the Super Nintendo spawned that. It's because the Super Nintendo came from the same thing that, like, that was already a thing. Like, um, Super Pitfall, right? Isn't that an NES game? Yeah, there's it, a bunch of games that have Super. And, I mean, even, you know, Mario Brothers versus Super Mario Brothers. Like, it, it's been that yeah, exactly. long. You know yeah. what I mean? So, yeah. So, that, that was that was totally a thing on the NES. So, it, make, it makes sense to have something on the NES called Super or something. As for the N64, though, that was just something they did for that. <laughs> <laughs> Something 64. Just slap 64 at the end of it. You got it. Um, Oh, yeah, just one last thing I want to play from the Super Nintendo. Um, We had mentioned in the episode that the noise on the Super Nintendo is mostly used in sound effects, and we shared a few examples of that. Uh, And, you know, we mentioned that it's rarely used in the music. But I I think when we recorded, I actually hadn't found or picked any examples of it being in music. Mm -hmm. Um, So we do have another track by Tim Fallon. He also did the uh, Equinox soundtrack, which I guess is the sequel to Solstice. Yeah. Um, And uh, yeah, so that actually uses noise in its music. Um, So we'll just play an example of that here. So I guess it's time for a name that game. Last time uh, we picked a selection uh, that was we didn't think like super. I, I guess Patrick, you picked this one. So what what was what was your thought about picking this one? Uh, I thought it would be maybe you know, fairly obscure. It was an Amiga selection, mm-hmm. um, but it, it is like a, a well known and well respected theme. I think uh, it's kind of funny because I grew up with Amiga and I didn't have this game, so like I don't really have a frame of reference for how well known it is. But I've seen people talk about it before online, so. Uh, let's give it a quick listen again. That was the theme to Xenon uh, by David Whitaker, and that was correctly guessed by JMD Amiga and Games Music. Uh, so nicely done, JMD. Yeah, nicely done. All right, so with that out of the way, we got another song here for you to guess. Uh, you know, again, all the guesses, uh, just write the guess to us on the podcast on SoundCloud. Uh, you know, just attach the note there. 
Uh, so here we go. Let's see if you can name that game. I guess we're kind of toward the end of the episode here. So, Patrick, do you have a song of the week? Uh, I do. Um, something we didn't touch upon in this episode, uh, something that's known as super NSF. These are NSFs that just like heavily abuse uh, like the certain tool that was made to implement raw PCM. It's really cool what they pull off. They can basically play multiple PCMs at the same time. Uh, it says up to four channels. I didn't really research how this works exactly. All of the audio is still just coming out of the one sample channel, but I think what it does is like it pre-mixes multiple sources into the sample channel, I think. Um, so you hear really cool stuff going on, like chords that change or like sounds that sort of like mix in and out um, because it sounds like the PCM is basically like juggling a bunch of like different initial things uh, and like outputting it into one thing. So, and it mixes that with the stock NES audio as well. So, uh, so we have a track here that is from Famicompo Mini Volume 7. Uh, it's called Haxus the Conqueror by someone named uh, Zymus, or X-I-A-M-U-S. And, um, yeah, it's a, just a pretty great track, uh, and thanks for listening. This has been Retro Game Audio.